Testing. Got me? All right, we're good. Okay. Uh, as she mentioned, I'm Nate. Uh, I've spoken up here once before. I know many of you. Uh, Pastor Tim's uh, out of town uh, today, and the church is on a budget, so I'm here. <laughs> so uh, my, my plan today is to go over Genesis 1 with you. Uh, if you remember last time I was here, I had the whiteboard and wrote everything up, and it was that day that I learned that I can't write and talk at the same time. Uh, so I went ahead and made a PowerPoint for today. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and dive right in. Uh, so Genesis, first, first book of the Bible, uh, right here is the first five words of the Bible. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, if you believe this, nothing else in the Bible should be a problem for you. What is this saying? In the beginning, so it's saying there was a beginning, God. So God was there in the beginning. So right away we can infer that we're referring to a being who exists outside of time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he was there before any physical matter, any laws of physics, anything. So we're talking about, and if I could, uh, Alexa, click. There we go. Uh, Alexa, click less. Okay. Uh, we're talking about a God who exists outside physical matter, space, and time. Uh, and we can tell because he created that this being who exists outside of space and time has authority over the things in space and time because he spoke it into existence, correct? So with this in mind, when we read somewhere else in the Bible of uh, a man living three days in the belly of a whale or... Uh, God parting the Red Seas and allowing the Israelites to go through, or walking on water, or multiplying food, feeding 5,000, or uh, <clears throat> rising from the dead. If you believe this, if you believe that in the beginning God, then nothing else should really be a problem for you. So I guess the big question is, is this true? Can we trust this? Uh, and so if we can go to the next slide. Alexa, next slide. There we go. Uh, last time I was up here, we, we talked about the different possibilities for a universe. You could either have uh, an eternal universe that's always existed or a universe that had a beginning sometime in the, in the past. Uh, and if this universe had a beginning in the past, uh, was it created by something outside of the universe? Or is there some kind of natural self-creating process that allowed the universe to come into being? Uh, and to kind of help us answer these questions of what exactly we're dealing with as far as the universe, uh, I'll bring up the first and second law of thermodynamics. Alexa, click. It's working so much better than I thought. Uh, so first law of thermodynamics states that energy cannot be created or destroyed. It only changes forms. And the second law of thermodynamics states that uh, it's called the law of entropy. It states that energy is constantly moving from a state of higher concentration to lower concentration. Um, kind of add a little bit of background information to that. I know those don't really mean anything when we just look at them, but uh, the way energy works in the universe that we live in uh, is, at least here on planet Earth, all living systems primarily get their energy from the sun. Uh, so what's happening is the sun is this giant ball of gas or material that's burning, and the chemicals that are burning in the sun are being that's chemical energy that's being transferred into electromagnetic energy in the form of light. Light is an electromagnetic wave. Uh, 
So electromagnetic energy is coming from the sun, and it's hitting planet Earth. And Earth has these amazing things on it called plants. And plants do this remarkable process called photosynthesis. And in photosynthesis, what a plant is actually doing is it's taking carbon dioxide, or CO2, from the air, and it's using this light energy, this electromagnetic energy of the sun. It's converting it back into a chemical energy, and it's making sugars that the plant can either use to build up different structures in the cell or, or do certain things. Uh, and so from that, those plants are able to make tree trunks or leaves, and then animals come along. And animals, they take that chemical energy, they eat that plant, they take that chemical energy and they use it for themselves, put it in their own biological systems. Or uh, it's winter in Michigan, we go out with an axe, we chop, chop down, we don't use axes anymore, we go with a chainsaw, we chop down that tree, uh, and we throw the log in the fire, and, and those, that chemical energy that the plant made, uh, we're burning and we're creating uh, uh, thermodynamic energy. Thermal is energy, or heat, so heat energy, and it's heating your house. Uh, an animal's using that energy, it's running, that's kinetic energy, the energy of motion. Uh, it could be uh, just using it mechanical energy, you know, when Lance is back there working out in his garage, chemical energy, he's using his muscles. Uh, so that's kind of how energy works in the world that we live in. The first law of thermodynamics is this principle that nowhere on earth is energy created. All of the energy, there's a little bit of energy from like the core of the earth, from the sun. Some small microorganisms use that. The bulk of the energy used by organic systems on planet earth is from the sun. And it's transferred. It's this transfer of energy. Nothing is actually created here. Uh, and so for the second law of thermodynamics, think about the sun burning, right? The sun's burning. The vast majority of the heat from the sun just kind of dissipates out in space. A very small sliver of it gets all the way here to planet Earth that our plants can use and harvest, and that's how all of this stuff around you is happening. Uh, so what can we infer from these? The second law of thermodynamics, the, energy, or the sun is constantly burning, right? There's a finite amount of matter in the sun. If the universe was eternal, that energy would have burned out an eternity ago. And our universe would be at something called heat death, where there's no real difference in the energy state of anything. Everything's kind of flat. You could not have anything, anything alive. Uh, the first law of thermodynamics, now that we've kind of narrowed it down to a created universe, the, third, or the first law of thermodynamics is saying that energy can't be created or destroyed within the universe. Uh, so could I get an Alexa click? So if, if you think back to that picture that we got, we've narrowed it down. So energy can't be created in the universe. It had to come from a source external to the universe. And here within the very first five words of the Bible, God answers some of the greatest metaphysical and or, uh, philosophical questions that we have. That we're dealing with a being who exists outside of the universe, but is in a position to create the universe and has authority over the things in the universe. Yeah. So uh, we'll go ahead with that in mind. I want you to keep that in mind. We're going to move on to the next slide. So there's this uh, uh, kind of cultural theory going around, or pretty much this, the story in our culture is that God is this being that humans 
invented to explain things that they didn't understand, right? Like the sun rises and it sets. Oh, God must be doing it. God must be pulling it. Uh, uh, we're able to do certain things. Oh, it must be, you know, God behind it doing it. And then so the, the story is that as science kind of advances and now that we know we're uh, uh, on a planet in orbit around the sun, we don't need God to explain uh, the sun rising or the sun setting. So the big kind of story or the big narrative is that uh, kind of as science advances, uh, Christianity or God are kind of shrinking, or at least the, the, the things we need God for are just shrinking and falling away. And uh, uh, really, if you think about this, it just doesn't apply. Like, that's not the God we're talking about at all. I mean, we open the scriptures in the first five words, God's saying he created. We're not talking about a God of the gaps. We're talking about a God who's revealed himself to creation. I mean, he's revealed himself through the things he's made, I think we've seen with the first and second law of thermodynamics. Last time I was up here, we talked about the information carrying capacity in a cell. Uh, he's introduced himself uh, through his word, and I think we've seen without a reasonable doubt that we at least have reason to, to trust this word. Uh, uh, and he's also revealed himself, if you've been a, or a, a Christian for a while, he's revealed himself like personally through the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So really, to say that as science advances, God's kind of falling back is just a fundamental misunderstanding of the God of the Bible. It definitely doesn't apply to Christianity. It's not the God I believe in. There's a, a mathematician and a scientist by the name of John Lennox, Alexa, click, uh, who uh, explains it this way. Alexa, click again. Uh, he differentiates between mechanism and agency in uh, explaining the existence of something. Uh, and the example that he uses is uh, the vehicle. Uh, actually, he's British, so he doesn't say the word vehicle. He calls it the Ford motor car, and it sounds all cool and stuff. Uh, but my dad retired out of GM, and I'm not allowed to say Ford in public, so I'm going to say vehicle for the purpose of this. Uh, but what he points out is that if you took a car and you broke it down and you looked at every individual piece and you explained exactly how it worked in every way, uh, and then you took a tour of the General Motors assembly plant and you saw exactly how it came together and how every little piece fit, what he points out is that at best as an explanation of how that car came to be, that's a half answer. Like, any complete answer for the existence of a vehicle would have to involve Henry Ford. The mind behind it. And so what he points out is, like, scientists, they want to they apply this, or at least people in our culture, they want to apply this to God and, and look at the things that God has made and explain how they work with natural processes and say, therefore, God doesn't exist. Well, no one would read their car's owner's manual and then tour the General Motors plant and come to the conclusion, therefore, Henry Ford didn't exist. But we want to do that to God, and that's just not how it works. So keep that in mind uh, as we move into the rest of the chapter. Now we're going to move in, and we're going to get to the creation days. Uh, hold off, Alexa. Uh, I'd like to, I know it's, it's atypical and it's a large chunk to read, but I think it's just generally poor form to to really talk about and discuss and, and, and tear apart a scripture without first reading it. So if it's all right, I'm just going to read to you the first chapter of Genesis. 
Uh, and I want you to pay attention kind of to the terminology that's used, the flow, and how it goes. And then we're going to talk about some different theories of, of what it might mean, okay? All right. So, Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, and according to its kind, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and years, and let them be, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves within the waters with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over all the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And we're going to stop there. Okay. Uh, 
Alexa slide. All right, so there's a ton of different interpretations of what we just read. Like everyone has their own opinion on it. Uh, there's way more. My plan today is to talk about three. Uh, there's way more than that. So any contention with anything I say, just let it go. Uh, so the first one I want to talk about is old earth creationism. Uh, major proponent, a major proponent of that today is a guy by the name of Hugh Ross. Uh, he runs a ministry, I believe, based out of Canada called uh, Reasons to Believe. Uh, I chose to do this one first. I feel like this is the, the view that really comes under attack probably the most within the church. Uh, and really, I think a lot of the contention comes from, like, people believe that they're valuing modern scientific theories over the scriptures or over the Word of God. Uh, or they're kind of, in a way, selling out to science. And there's a couple reasons I don't really buy that. I'm going to share a couple of them with you as we go over it. Uh, really, I, I've read a couple of Hugh Ross's books, and his arguments are just as much linguistic as they are scientific. Uh, by that, I mean it's based on the language or the, the terminology used in Genesis. Uh, which brings us to the next point. Uh, Hugh Ross points out there's really only 3,000 words in biblical Hebrew uh, contrast that to the hundreds of thousands of words that we have in the English language. Um, and you automatically know that like, certain words are going to have multiple meanings. Uh, and you kind of have to use the context to infer what it means. Uh, another thing that he, Ross, points out uh, is that a lot of the early church fathers actually had views of creation that were longer than the 10,000 years or less than 10,000 years that... Uh, would, would be viewed from, like, the young earth perspective. Uh, and so if, if them who were writing, I mean, uh, uh, Josephus was a Jewish historian. He kind of had that view. Uh, he was around the time of Jesus, way before any real scientific pressures. I think Augustine was also an early church father. Uh, people who existed or way before uh, scientific theories really would have added contention to, the, to that kind of interpretation of the scripture. Uh, so basically the theory is that uh, the word days that are described in the, in the Genesis account are actually long periods of time, more like ages over which God used natural processes to create things. Uh, and the word yom, which is day in Hebrew, uh, actually has four meanings, one of which could be a 24-hour period. Another one, uh, could be a long, unspecified period of time. And so, it, uh, according to Hugh Ross, it, it really kind of fits. Uh, also, the word uh, evening and morning could, rather than be uh, a sunrise and a sunset, be the beginning or the ending of an era. Uh, uh, Hugh Ross actually uses a lot of other scriptures to kind of tie in his theory of the, the older version of the earth. Uh, specifically, he puts a lot of weight in Job. Job 37 uh, to 39, specifically, is an area where God's actually talking to Job, and he says, uh, uh, really, it's kind of an aggressive conversation. He's like, where were you, Job, when I made this? Where were you, Job, when I made this? Where were you, Job, when I made this? Uh, and the order that he uses there actually lines up really nicely with the biblical days of creation uh, that we see in Genesis. So he kind of used that as like a more in-depth description of, of what we read today. Uh, so that would be one theory. Uh, as I mentioned, it's the theory that God used these natural processes uh, to create uh, uh, everything that we see. Uh, rather than uh, 
naturalistic evolutionary theory, uh, which would be promoted by uh, really modern academia. Uh, he would say that rather than natural selection acting on random variation, it would have been natural selection acting on specific mutations that God put in place, and, that, and through that process, God brought about different species and uh, everything that we see today. Uh, so one thing that I, I thought was really interesting that he Ross points out uh, is in Genesis 1-2 where it says, and the spirit of the Lord God was hovering over the face of the waters. That, that word hovering that he uses is really only used one other time in the Bible, uh, and it's used to denote an eagle hovering over its nest. Um, and so he kind of points out that it's, there's kind of this life-giving connotation to it. And so he Ross, it's his kind of view that when the darkness was over the face of the deep, that's when God's building these basic natural molecules, or uh, not molecules, but organisms from which he used as a base to create the rest of uh, all the living things that we see and clean up the universe. But uh, another thing that Hugh Ross points out that I thought was pretty interesting is uh, if you look at the, the naturalistic view, uh, that is without God, the naturalistic view of how life on earth came to be, uh, they would say it all started with the Big Bang, right? So there was a Big Bang. Uh, the planets, everything came into being. At that time, uh, the earth was originally formed. It was completely covered in water, uh, completely covered in seas, like a 1,000 feet deep. Uh, then uh, uh, it was also like there was like a lot of dust and debris from the Big Bang that would have completely occluded the light from reaching the earth. So really what you would have seen is uh, uh, earth covered in deep seas with darkness over the face of the deep. And then over time, the dust from the Big Bang would have settled, and for the first time you would have light appearing on the surface of the earth. And so you'd, for the first time in the history of the universe, or the history of earth, uh, be able to determine the difference between day and night. Uh, at that time, you... It's hypothesized in naturalistic science that these very simple photosynthetic, photosynthetic meaning they get their energy from the sun, they do photosynthesis, these photosynthetic organisms uh, would have been formed in the Earth's early seas. Uh, a byproduct of photosynthesis is oxygen, so they're taking in their carbon dioxide from the Earth's atmosphere, they're giving out oxygen. Uh, this would have created uh, really a... a an atmosphere, kind of like the one, not quite as advanced as the one we're living in now, but an atmosphere uh, with oxygen in it, which would have separated clouds that originally covered the seas uh, from the seas below. So you really would have almost like uh, an expanse, maybe, uh, between waters above and waters below. Waters above being the clouds that completely cover the earth and uh, waters below being the seas. Uh, after that, there would have been like plate tectonics and things naturally forming, uh, which would have allowed dry land to appear for the first time on Earth. And now uh, dry land is serving as this great vessel for which these simple photosynthetic organisms uh, could have developed a little bit more advanced uh, capabilities and become simple plants, uh, which are now doing an increased amount of photosynthesis, increasing the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere, uh, which would have paved the way for uh, aerobic organisms or organisms that use oxygen as a, a means of respiration, kind of like us or fish, uh, to appear. Uh, 
uh, but it also would have cleaned up the atmosphere, cleaned up the clouds from the atmosphere, and there would have been breaks in the clouds so that for the first time in the history of the earth, you're able to see specifically the sun and the moon and the stars and different formations of the stars. Uh, then you have this oxygen-based atmosphere, and this is what uh, scientists are, would say led to what's, what they're calling today the Cambrian explosion, which is this large volume of uh, uh, fish and other aquatic animals that appear in the fossil layers. Uh, you would also, around that time, on, on the uh, land, started having basic land animals, birds, uh, things that are a little bit less advanced, not quite mammals yet. Uh, and then uh, after that, through the process of natural selection, you would start getting these more complex land animals, and mammals, uh, livestock, beasts of the earth, things like that. Uh, and then lastly, these things. Last thing, you would get man. Uh, we had issues with the clicker, so I'm just going to set this down so I don't hurt anybody. Uh, uh, but lastly, you would get man. And so what Hugh Ross points out is the order is right on the money uh, of how it was created. And so uh, in order to really get the full picture of that, uh, you got to understand there's really two main views. I'm going to try this one more time, and hopefully I don't screw it up. Uh, but there's two main views for uh, how humans came to be on planet Earth. There's uh, our view, really, that, or the Christian view, that God created man, fully formed, fully developed, and then through this process of sin, uh, things are breaking down. Things are, uh, we're getting more diseases. There's more genetic anomalies, uh, uh, more things that can go wrong with our body. And while we may be uh, technologically advancing as culture, as humans, but biologically things are getting worse uh, for us. Uh, so that would be one view. The other view is this kind of view of natural, or this uh, naturalistic view, uh, which states that long ago through this process of spontaneous generation, life very simple forms of life formed on planet Earth. Uh, and then through this process of natural selection based on random variation, uh, it advanced to human beings, which would be kind of right up here uh, where we are today. And what he Ross points out is that uh, if that's true, if this naturalistic uh, perspective is true, then uh, this evolutionarily inferior Bible writer, writing 4,000 years before the advent of modern science, got really stinking lucky. He drilled it. He drilled the order. Uh, and, I mean, none of this is intuitive. There's no reason to assume that the surface of the early earth would be covered in water and uh, darkness would be over the face of the deep. That's not intuitive. And it's in direct contrast to any other ancient creation myths of the day. Like, the Babylonians, it was like a old Native American myth on the backs of sea turtles or something. Like, this is in stark contrast to anything else. Uh, and so really what we're left with is either Moses or whoever wrote Genesis hit the uh, philosophical and scientific lottery and just nailed it, or maybe Scripture's God-breathed and profitable, and we can trust it. So uh, That was kind of all I had to say about old earth creationism. I spent the bulk of the time on old earth because I feel like it's uh, the most contended one in, in our culture and in the church. Uh, so we can go ahead and uh, Alexa click onto the young earth. Uh, this one's a little bit more self-explanatory. Uh, if you've heard of Answers in Genesis or Ken Ham or uh, the Ark Encounter down in uh, Kentucky or the Creation Museum, uh, this would be their view. 
Uh, they hold the view that the days described in Genesis were actual, literal 24-hour days. Uh, they, uh, the sunrise then would be an actual sunrise, or, or the evening would be a sunrise or sunset, and morning would be sunrise. Uh, but, uh, and they would say that there's no break. It's just straight like Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created, and he goes right into the creation days where he develops uh, the actual, the more specifics about the, the world. Um, and uh, they would also contend that God made things fully. Really the big argument against this would be like radiometric dating. Uh, and radiometric dating, as you may know, uh, scientists, they um, look at how rocks are formed uh, through natural processes, and then they, uh, they have a natural level of radiation when they're initially formed, and they're breaking down at a certain rate. And so if you measure the amount of radiation coming off a rock, uh, you should be able to take that rate and backdate it to figure out uh, how old these rocks are. And that's where modern scientists are getting the dates of about 13.7 billion years, uh, what they're saying uh, the Earth is. Uh, what the answers in Genesis people would point out is uh, no one's contending that these rocks were made by natural processes, and there's absolutely no reason why we should assume that a rock uh, made by natural processes would have the same starting level of radiation that a rock would have if it was made by God. So you can't really compare it like that, and I think that's a valid argument. Uh, they would also say uh, for a lot of the geological formations that we see, let's say the Grand Canyon, for instance, uh, things that um, naturalistic scientists would say uh, happened over billions of years uh, through this process of gradual erosion, uh, those are actually just as well explained by the uh, global flood catastrophe that we see in Genesis. That rather than this happening slowly over millions of years, it happened rapidly in a short amount of time, and that's uh, how we see that. Okay? Uh, so that's one view. Uh, another view would be historical creationism. This is kind of like a little cosmopolitan view of them all uh, mixed together. If we can get a Alexa click, there we go. Uh, this is basically young earth and old earth, kind of. Uh, but they would contend that there's a break between Genesis 1 and 2. And I'll just read it for you, and maybe you'll sense a break there too. Uh, but it says, Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2 is, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. They would say that this is a specific event from the, the next creation days. Uh, that there could be a gap there of just an undetermined amount of time, a couple billion years, why not? Uh, so really I would say the argument against this, uh, oh, it, so with this method, like the rocks are radiometrically dated as being 13.7 billion years old uh, because they are, because God created them, there was a long break, uh, and then uh, he came back and, and created the, the other seven days, uh, or the other six days. So, uh, really, I think the big argument against this is then you have a billion years where really not much is happening and God's just hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, but, I mean, I think that kind of brings us back to the first point. We're, we're dealing with a being who exists outside of time. Can a being who exists outside of time be bored? I don't know. I don't, know. I don't pretend to know that, that much about God. Uh, but if we could go ahead and click to the next slide. So, really, I guess the big question is which one's right? 
if that was your question. Uh, so, like I mentioned, the, the big issue, it seems like, the difference between these is time, right? And what, just one observation, the issue, or the, the being, the only being around uh, who is really a witness to all this, exists outside of time. Uh, I, but, but it is, like, I, I do find it very peculiar that here, like, I can read the Genesis account, and I can uh, see the first and second law of thermodynamics, and I see the order uh, in which... Moses recorded the creation events, and I, so I, like I can read this text, and I can be almost absolutely sure, at least very reasonably sure, uh, that this is divinely inspired, and, and it's, it's the Word of God, right? Yet, at the same time, I can't talk to another Christian and get, like, an agreement on the age of the universe within 6.7 billion years. That's remarkable, right, that we can do that? Like, what explains that? It's a big question, right? Uh, so if I can get another click... Here's kind of one thought on it. Is it possible that God doesn't care? Is it possible uh, that God gave us just enough information, or he gave us enough information that we could know without a reasonable doubt that this is his inspired word and we can trust it? Uh, Hugh, Ross, Hugh Ross was never a, a Christian that loved science. Hugh Ross was a scientist who read the Genesis creation account and just got blown away. I mean, that's his story. I feel like God's given us enough information that we can know without a reasonable doubt that this was him. But he didn't give us so much information that we would waver as like different cultural and scientific views came over time. Like, can you imagine if Moses like walked up on Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments and he like comes walking down and he's talking to the Israelites and he tries explaining like plate tectonics and microbiology? They would have laughed him off the mountain. They would, like, they would have grabbed the first bus ticket back to Egypt. Like, no one's sticking around for that conversation. God gave us enough that we can know it was him, but he didn't want us to be misled by different views as time progressed. It, it, so if, if we can just go ahead and move on to the next slide. And this kind of reminds me of the verse I closed with last time is kind of where I want to go again. Uh, it's... Romans 1, verse 18 to 20, and I'm going to read it out of my Bible because I kind of paraphrased up there. I script, skipped a, a verse or two for brevity's sake. Uh, but Romans 1, 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So what is this saying? Well, I, I, think, I think at the base, the most clear interpretation is, I mean, God's made it plain. God's shown it to us. And... If you're out there and you're avoiding God and you're hiding behind claims of atheistic scientists of today, I think you're without excuse. I think he's shown it to us. I think he's given us enough that we can know without a reasonable doubt that it was him. But what else is the same? If we can reasonably know it was him, and I think we, we just went over what I think is three plausible arguments for, or three plausible mechanisms 
by which God created the universe. Um, and I think we've seen from the first and second law of thermodynamics that, I mean, there's really no plausible naturalistic explanation for the existence of the universe, at least the way we see it. So, so we're without excuse, right? What else can we can infer from this passage? If God's made it plain and we're without excuse, why, why did he make it plain? Why are we without excuse? Because he's trying to reveal himself to us. I think that's remarkable. I mean, the God of the universe, that God who exists outside of space and time, is trying to reveal himself to us. He's trying to reveal himself to us through the things that he's made, but also through the things, uh, through his word, which I think we can trust without a reasonable doubt. Uh, and also through the personal work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is a God who's trying to show us who he is. But why? Why would God want to show us who he is? Because he's pursuing us. He wants us. This guy, the God of the universe, wants to have a relationship with us. Isn't that remarkable? I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. It's kind of where we're closing. Uh, but if this is news to you, if this isn't something you've heard before, if you didn't know that there's a God of the universe who wants you, who's pursuing you, and I think he's tearing down all the scientific and philosophical walls between you and him, he wants to have a relationship with you. And if that's news to you, uh, we just, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to to, to pray with you and just get to know you more. So uh, in a minute, I'm going to pray, and the worship team is going to uh, go ahead and lead us in one more song. Uh, but if this is news to you, I want you to calm down and just talk to one of the elders. Uh, I'll be down here in the corner. Uh, if you have any other questions or things you want to talk about, I don't pretend to know everything. Uh, but we would just, just love to connect with you. Uh, so if it's all right, I'll go ahead and pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll close with a song, okay? So, Lord God, I just want to thank you for grace. I want to thank you for life. I want to thank you that, that you're a God who's revealing yourself to us, who's uh, shown yourself to us through the things that you've made and through your word uh, and through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And uh, I just pray that you would just help us to draw closer to you, God, that you would continue to break down walls and burial, barriers, whatever they may be, between us uh, and, and just, uh, uh, just continue to work in us, Lord. Uh, in your holy name, amen. Now, uh, I do have to make one announcement. There's a luncheon after this, uh, and it will be in the back. It's for people who have already signed up. There's, it's like a welcome luncheon, uh, and it'll be in the back. Uh, also, uh, this is kind of the formal ending of the service, so uh, we're just going to sing one more worship song. If, if you want to come forward and, and pray with us, we would love that. Uh, but other than that, you're dismissed, okay? Thank you.